All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Cotton Mafia podcast. Me and Tyler are here with Larry Black. He's a gen manager at the Central Rolling Plains Co-op in Roscoe. Um, he's been the 2019 Gen of the Year, 2013 president of the Texas Agricultural Cooperative Council, and currently he's on the president of the Cotton... The third vice president. Third vice president of the Cotton Jenner's Association. Is that right, Larry? That, that's it. Okay. Um, kind of what we're going to talk about today is ginning, just problems that you can see coming from a producer that you've dealt with, stuff like that, and maybe stuff that's going on with the gin right now. So uh, we'll start right there. So where's what's going on with the gin? Well, we're in repair season. We've just finished a above average crop, not a record crop, but we just finished a good crop. And this is the time of year that we take everything apart. I'll be having some pictures later of, for instance, channel saws. You guys are familiar with channel saws that are in the burr extractor on the on the uh, strippers. Your your cylinders are well. Yours are bigger because you have the seven seventy. But yeah. the like the sixties and the six and six nineties are what fifty two inches wide. Ours are ten feet wide, and we have a total of ten cylinders in our stick machines. So you can imagine how many screws and saws and all that is. Then you have another set of saws in the gin feeder over the stand. So we're changing all of those this year. We didn't change any this past year because of the short season. We try to change every other cylinder. Every We try to change, you know, every other year a cylinder. So uh, anyway, this year just catches us doing all of them. That's a major repair. Uh, we're doing some work out back on our trash stacker to stay in compliance with the uh, TCEQ, uh, maintain our air permit, and we're also doing some additional work on our fire suppression system, which we've been working on for the burr pile. We have a, uh, we've drilled a well, we have a 10,000 gallon tank, we have a couple of pumps that will move quite a bit of water and to spray. Of course, the problem with us is usually when we have a fire, it's extremely cold. So if you're spraying water, it freezes. Yeah. And we, we got to deal with that. But those pumps, do they have to stay winterized at all times or do y'all have to go out there during the year and drain we, them? We try to drain them after every use. Okay. Um, so we were kind of talking about this before, but uh, what? how did you actually get into ginning? Purely by luck. I was a high school graduate, went on wheat harvest, came back uh, from Montana, and I had signed up in the National Guard. I went to boot camp that year. When I got back, I didn't have anything to do. So I went and talked to my best friend in high school. His older brother managed the gym there in Quanah. And I talked to him, and I was like, Gary, I need a job. And he told me, well, go out to the gym and do such and such. I knew where the gym was, but that's about <laughs> all I knew. <laughs> Luckily, I knew one of the guys, knew a couple of the guys inside of the gym that were working in there, and I asked them, you know, what am I supposed to do? And they told me, and that was kind of the start of everything. I became... Well, I was an office boy with a side gig of keeping the old M farm malls running and uh, lining up trailers, catching cotton seed, those kind of things that we used to do back in the day. Then I became manager. That, that all happened in 81. And then I became manager in 85, I believe it was. And I was at Quanah until 2002 when I came to Roscoe. 
then in, in uh, Roscoe offered quite a few opportunities. We've been blessed with some good crops since I've been there. It's not anything that I've done. We've done, uh, of course, a merger with the Inadale between Roscoe Co-op and Inadale Co-op and cre- created Central Rolling Plains Co-op. We have grown the gin from an average. When I got here, it had an aver- a five-year average of about 15,000 bales. We now have an average of 65,000 bales. Our acres have increased. We have a huge footprint uh, for an area to gather cotton from. And, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate. I've got a great board that I work for. They're very supportive of what I do. They're encouraging as far as being involved in the different organizations, which is why I've held, I've been fortunate enough to hold offices in the major, the major ag, uh, like the co-op council and the Texas Cotton Generals Association. Those are, are a couple. And of course the National Cotton Council, those are, those are three of the big ones that we support as well as, uh, some other, you know, Rolling Plains cotton growers. Uh, the boll weevil eradication business. We support a lot of a lot of ind- of groups, if you will, and it's all uh, it's very informative. You learn what's going on. You know, or you think you know, what's going to happen, and and with that information, you can give your producers a heads up on hey, this is coming, or hey, you need to know about this. So that's that's kind of you know I've I've uh, I've been at Roscoe for like I said I came there in '02 so I've been there for 20 years and uh, it's been great yeah every bit of it yeah well um, I mean I've been there since 13 I mean that's when I started farming and I've never had one bad thing to say about you uh, and I I know gin managers from everywhere so uh, one of the cool things that I don't know if this was your idea or not but it's happened under your watch is the the gripe sessions that we don't have we don't have landlords out there in there in the gin like a gin meeting does we just have producers and i think that has really helped out you know that's been one of the things that after we did our merger with Inadale between roscoe and Inadale, uh Inadale did things a little different than roscoe roscoe did things a little different than Inadale did so the board felt like we needed to have a means of communicating with our producers to find out exactly what's going on. So we came up with a producer information meeting. Now it's been shortened up to be called the gripe session uh, since then, but it is, it's a, it's a great time to get just the producers to get one-on-one with the producers and tell them what's going on in the gin, what ha- what we're going to do. If we've had any problems, what we're going to do about them, and then it gives them a chance to feed back to us, hey, I don't like this. I don't like the way y'all are doing this. We had a, a one of the things that, uh, and I never I never knew this was an issue, but evidently we were rolling up the tarps wrong. And uh, you know, they're like a, I guess it wouldn't be round module, but just a like an old square con- module. Yeah, conventional modules. Mm-hmm. We're rolling them up wrong. Well, what do you mean? I mean, there, it's a roll. Well, there is a certain way if you're going to put the, uh, as you know, you roll that tarp out on the mm-hmm. ground and clamp the flap end of it to the to the module builder to the tailgate on the module builder, then when you pull it over, the fitted end fits on the other end. Well, if you've got that backwards, 
it's very hard to change out there. The wind the never blows around here. Yeah. So. You get a little breeze every once in a while. <laughs> that, that creates problems. But uh, that was one of the things that came out of the gripe session. We've had several other really good suggestions that have come out of there. But most of all, it's a means to communicate with our producers and keep them informed on what we're doing. Yeah, like the gripe session this year, I, I don't think one person griped about anything at the gin. Now, there were some other people there, like other companies that kind of were there talking to us, and they let them have it. And I was just kind of watching, and I was like, this is not and, very nice. And that's a little that was a little odd. Yeah. But given the situation, uh, we did have a guest mm-hmm. at, this, at the gripe session this year. Normally, it is uh, gin personnel and producers only. We don't, we don't invite any of the vendors or anything yeah. like that to it. But this time we did. We felt like that was a uh, felt like that was a need for some of our producers. Yeah, some of the some of the older guys. That was it. Got a little wild. We'll, we'll change the subject <laughs> on that one. But uh, so you've you've went from trailers to all modules to now dealing with what 70 percent round modules. Mm-hmm. How's how's that transition been going from round? You know, at first when we got the round bales, I was uh, not really in favor of them, but it was simply because we were not e- equipped to handle them. As we put in the equipment, uh, you know, the the unwrapper, we have a Stover unwrapper. It works great for us. It's a one-man operation and uh, does a very good job. Of course, we've had to change the chains in the module trucks to accommodate the round modules and not poke holes in the plastic. Uh, contamination has been an issue. And we're doing the best we can and trying to figure out some different different angles to take on that that we can keep the plastic out. I've had a few. What, what code is that? 71. 71. I've had a few 71s come out of South Texas before, and I figured out what it was. is guys cutting stocks, and we're stacking modules on top of cut stocks. And I was getting yelled at, and I was like, I don't know what's going on. So yeah, that can be an issue. The majority of the time that we get a 71 remark, it's come out of a broke module. And that's because we can't get underneath right. to get the plastic out. There's just, you know, those those things weigh 5,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And you just we just can't get the plastic out by hand. So we go ahead and we run it through the feeder. Well, in that short time that we're ginning those three bales, there will be some plastic that will get onto the cylinders, of course, and then and whip around there and break off into little pieces. It'll go into the gin, and it may or may not show up in that bale. It may wait 20 or 30 bales and show up in a conventional module. So uh, we use our camera system. Uh, the classing office, when we have a 71 call, they send us a picture of what it is. And we will look up that bale number and see date and time, go back to our camera system, look and see what we were ginning at that time, and make sure that it's not some other issue. But majority of the time, it's a broke module. So a mill can go back and look at a bell they get and track that back to a farm nowadays, correct? Yes. The industry utilizes a, a process called permanent bale identification, PBI. And uh, that is where we put a tag on the bale at the gin. That number carries forward and becomes the warehouse receipt number. It carries into uh, the laydown at the mill. The mill can then identify back, well, we've got a problem with, we think this bale, we can look at bale number up and tell you what field it came out of. Now, one of the things, and I guess this is a good time to talk about it, one of the things that, that uh, I had laying around was, this is, no, 
Hold, hold on one second. We'll let you grab that Should real quick that for me. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Those on YouTube know what's going on, but right now Larry has given me some tags from the late 70s probably is what we guess. Maybe. I think so. Something like that. So back in the day, we've got this this metal tag, and this would go on the strap because the majority of the of the bales were uh, – for some of you guys that are really experienced, that means really old, you'll remember the, the buckles that used to be on the straps, and uh, that's how they tied the bales out. This would go around the strap, and then this number would be the bale number at the gin. It would go to the compress, and it would get issued this number, and this is the number that would go out into the to the mills and things like that. So when they tried to trace it back, you could trace it back to this then they had to get in touch with us and figure out that it was this and we could uh figure out where it came from not a very not a very good process. not a real efficient system but now they can just look on the tag that's on the bale and it'll have our name on there as well as the number and they can contact us and we can tell them where it came from so basically someday you might be able to buy some clothing some jeans and be able to look at a tag on it probably with your phone and even like know exactly where probably this cotton came from that made this piece of clothing. There have been some jeans in the past that had a, a QR code in them. You could scan the code. Remember those. And it would tell you where that cotton was produced. I hope it wasn't from my farm. <laughs> I do uh, have one question back towards the uh, plastic contamination. I can't remember if I heard or there is, but is there some new technology that they're trying to use to help catch it before it, Leaves the gin is it's like an it's a UV or a light, mm-hmm. isn't it? There is a lot of research going on right now in the industry on how to do it because it has become a major problem. I mean, since when when you wrap cotton in plastic, you're going to have a problem, and uh, a lot you know the 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 harvesters have converted to the round bales really quick, so the percentages have jumped up. And uh, it's more efficient to do it that way. So there's a lot more plastic out there than there was. And if if you're putting that plastic into cotton, it becomes a problem for the mill as far as uh, a contaminant in the cloth. Because usually they they won't really find it until it becomes material. But uh, in the industry, we're looking at some things with, uh, we're looking at some cameras that are color oriented so it'll scan like where the cotton comes down the the apron on the gin stand it'll scan that we're having a hard time telling the difference between yellow wrap and a stick uh bark or not bark but the stalk that's what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. the the yellow think about it the yellow wrap fairly similar shade if you're moving real quick exactly so if if we started having contamination issues where they're actually like starting to become major issues the thing might be to change colors possibly in the future they're talking about that uh the new color is the blue pantone econo wrap 306 it's a little bit different than the econo wrap the the color that works best is green i read some of that Uh, dark green because it's not in the color quadrant that stocks would be. Right. Or, or, or we even had trouble with, uh, on some of the tests, they even had trouble with some of the yellow cotton, you know, the cotton that had stayed in the burr. 
and stained. And got I guess stained. Picker guys listening to us right now are going to be like, um, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just contamination issues. Uh, how many? How many of those did we actually see come through? We had twelve. We had, I think, we had eight the year before. We had, we had a few more than that this year. But uh, one thing our board does, and one thing our co-op does. We feel like that if that contaminant gets in there and you get a call, a 71 remark, we will pay you for that. That's about a 30 cent discount, 31 cent discount on the loan chart. And we will pay, we'll pay you the 31 cents. Okay. So the producer is not out anything on that. That's a good deal. Um, so besides all that, um, how, how have you uh, transitioned into moving around modules? You've been using trucks and just everything and you can figure out? We're still using module trucks. Uh, everything, when I talk to my, my counterparts, they're all saying that about 30 miles seems to be the, the breaking point for if you're hauling modules farther than 30 miles, a flatbed works better. But uh, if you're 15, 20 miles, the module truck is just faster because it's, you know, it goes out, self-loads, come back, self-unload, done deal but it's only hauling four, so if, four round modules. So if you're going out uh, farther, 30 miles or farther, take the flatbed out there, take a loader out, load up eight on a load, bring it back to the gin, unload it, and we would unload in groups of four so that our yard truck could still pick it up and put it on the module feeder. And uh, I, I see us doing more of that as we get a larger percentage but uh, at this point, uh, just we haven't really found a good groove. We've tried a few times uh, hauling on flatbeds, and we just just haven't got there. Yeah, with the new seven seventies and gaining a few more inches on the belt, is there still plenty of room in the module trucks, or is it? No, it's, it's getting no. It's pretty tight. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, our our unwrapper has a little bit of problem handling that bigger module because of uh well when it you know when it comes down with those arms it's it fits a, a 690 mm -hmm. the 770 being bigger it bites into the bale and then it can't turn so I've, uh we're we're looking at changing the geometry on some of that and see what we can do that's a, a thing we're talking about this year i've noticed they kind of marshmallow out to a lot more than a 690 does yes and in my opinion that's because they're using the same wrap I mean, the 690 is, is designed to have like three and a quarter wraps on the bale. When you use that same length and go around the bale, it comes out of 770 that's four, six, eight inches bigger. Uh, you wind up with about two and three quarter wraps. So you've got a weak spot there that will let it stretch a little bit. Okay. Um, so, like, say for the listeners, if you were a producer of cotton right now, what would be a question you'd want to ask your Jenner this time of year, just in general? Like, well, I feel like we've we've probably addressed that through our our gripe session because we've told our producers what we're going to be doing and uh, listened for their input also. If if I were, uh, you know, the things I want to know is how are you repairing? You know, don't just don't just give it a lick and a promise. I mean, you really need to get in there. In our stripper cotton, we're handling a lot more dirt. We're handling a lot more sticks. So those saws have got to be sharp. And 
ductwork has to be in good shape or you're going to have leaks all over the place. So the, the, keeping the saws sharp, keeping the grid bar sharp in the lint cleaners, uh, that's another little thing that will help your, your grades quite a bit. And uh, I'd want to know that my gin is doing the best it can as far as moisture restoration goes. We are actually putting in a new uh, Samuel Jackson Steamroller 3 this year. We've pretty well worn out our two. Uh, what that does is what we're doing on that is we're restoring the moisture in the bale back up to around 7%. The rule is you can go to 75 and we may try to do that on, on a little more because we're trying to get every bit we can for the producer. But we're figuring that, you know, it's it, it's like I always say that it, it doesn't seem like it's a lot, but if you're increasing the moisture from 5% to 7%, you're gaining 2%. Well, that's not really a whole lot on a bale, 10 pounds, you know. And, of course, this year at a dollar a pound, let's say, well, it's 10 bucks. Most years it's at 70 cents, well, it's closer to, you know, whatever that is. Uh, so at $10 a bale, that still doesn't sound like a whole lot until you figure th- until you factor in that we ginned almost 86,000 bales. Now you're talking about $860,000. You had a, I forgot how much money you said that we saved by making our bales a little bit bigger and not making, I mean, what's the, what's the, the limit size we can make? You can make up to a 550 without any penalty okay. and still be eligible for the loan. Okay. And we don't we don't make our bales that big, but we have a our average is somewhere around five ten, five oh five, five ten, five twelve in the last few years. And the benefit to doing that is number one on our side, we're not having to, to turn that press. We're not having to cycle that press as often. Uh, I know a lot of gins will have an average of say four ninety, four ninety five, something like that. On the year that we just finished the number that I think the number I presented the other day in that gripe session was we would have ginned like 3,200 bales more than what we actually did if we had just made 490-pound bales instead of making 510. Again, 30 pounds doesn't sound like much, but spread it over 86,000 bales, and it becomes quite Starts a bit. adding up straps, bags. And, and of course, the savings to the producer is, uh, like at our gin, we're uh, 13... 50 a bale for bagging, strap, classing, hauling, dues, insurance. All of those things are rolled into that one price. And it's, it's uh, you know, again, you take the 3,200 bales times $13, $13.50 a bale, significant savings to the producers. Um, so we're saving money there. You're... You're, you're getting the producer better grades and you're adding water back to the bales and then we're saving money on strapping and making bales the correct size or bigger. That's something you can ask your jenner if they're doing or they're thinking or even ask, asking a board member, mm-hmm. like stuff like that. Um, what are we seeing for seed prices coming up in 2022? Don't know. Uh, just came back from a meeting and I visited with a couple of the, the – uh, seed buyers at the meeting asking them if they had any any ideas on contracts we did very well this past year 
contracting our seed. And uh, his answer was the market is just too wild right now. We don't know yeah. how much we're going to have. We don't know how much we're going to need. Uh, prices are just all over the place. Well, oil seeds, uh, there's a lot of oil seed stuff that comes out of Ukraine and stuff. And they might, if they don't get their plant, their, their crops planted, I mean, we're, I mean, they're not directly involved with cotton, but I can see how that can make it go up. Cottonseed oil pretty well follows uh, palm oil, uh, soybean oil, things of that nature. So as those prices stay up, yes, the seed price stays up. Speaking of seed, not necessarily price, but seems like the last three or four years, our, our gen has really picked up on the production side of stuff for, for different companies. How has that changed? I wouldn't say changed ginning or changed the logistics, but has it created more trying to figure out exactly when to gin and how to gin certain fields? Well, it's become, uh, you know, this last year we had 10%, 9.8% of our cotton seed was uh, seed block. And what that does for the producer is it gets them a little bit of money up front per acre, and then it gets them a premium price on the backside. So it's a, it's a good deal for for the producer. For us, we're making uh, – we're able to get the same price that we contracted on our higher seed this year, and we're able to get a little bit of a, a processing fee out of it. And that alone amounted to right at a dollar a bale this year just for on the seed block business. So the seed block's making the gin a little bit of extra making money. Making a little bit of money. It's, you know, it's a little bit of uh, yes stop, clean up. We like to do live catches as, as opposed to putting it in the box. We, we like to put the seed directly in the truck. That way there's no chance of contamination. There's no chance of getting anything mixed up or anything like that. So we, we do most of ours that way. We do have several seed boxes, and we put a couple of different varieties into the boxes and, and some of our bigger lots. Uh, you know, the thing, the thing we do, and, and we do this really with all of our uh, all of our cotton, we do what's called block ginning. And that's where we'll gin your entire field. You know, if you if you say you harvest 10 modules today and you turn them in and you harvest 10 modules tomorrow and you turn them in and then 10 the next day, we'll hold them all till it's time to gin all 30 of them together. That does a couple of different things for us. It makes us more efficient because we're not having to stop and uh, change producers be totally honest we don't stop and change producers anyway we just try to uh get as good of a cutoff as we can as as y'all well know you'll see some grade your first grade or your last grade may be a little bit different than the rest of it because we got a little bit of somebody else's cotton in yours but that makes the gin a whole lot more efficient because when you have to stop and tie out remnants like what we used to do that takes time then at the end of the season you've got a whole bunch of remnants sitting around that you've got to put together that takes time and labor. So uh, that's that's one of the ways that we, we try to help on our efficiency. Okay. Um, last episode, we had Chase on here, and he was talking about the trust protocol. Um, is our gen – I saw when I signed – I signed up after we had that recording. Is that something the gen signed up for too? We are in support of the, the uh, U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, and – some of the meetings I've been at lately, it looks like, you know, to get anybody to do anything, you got to have some incentive. And right now, there's not a lot of incentive to do that. 
but I think going forward, there's going to be some price premiums for, for cotton that's enrolled in the protocol. So I think that will help quite a bit. And, uh, it's not that hard to do. It's, uh, you know, they want you to, to be more sustainable. That's kind of the buzzword it's, in the industry. And it's not really like a, a contractor. You're getting a premium. Like they're not buying said, like say I've certified 200 bells with the protocol even though those 200 bells, I mean, they're not really buying my 200 bells needs to say correct. Or how would they, how would they know it's my 200 bells? I guess what I need to talk with y'all to tell them I had X number of bells with them. When you sign up, your, uh, I believe it's your tax ID number will tie to accounts and, and the bales that come off of those accounts. If you've said that you're going to grow those more sustainably, uh, that will track it. Okay. And uh, they're like I said, they're talking about a possible uh, pool, if you will, that they will purchase only protocol bales, and those bales receive anywhere from uh, one to two cents premium. I could add up again, not a lot of money, but you spread it over you know, five hundred thousand bales or three quarter million bales, it's a lot of money, and that's I think that's how they're going to make the protocol work is by offering that incentive. Now, there's a lot of the big names that are only purchasing cotton that can they can prove that it's more sustainable, renewable, uh, green, if you want to call it green. And those companies, uh, Gap, Nike, uh, a lot of things like that, they're, that's what they want because that's what the consumer wants. The younger consumer wants things they don't care about how grandpa did it. They wanted things to last. And uh, being more sustainable, that's what they're after. But sustainability, all of us all of us don't really care for change. And you go in, especially you go in and you try to tell a farmer how to raise his crop, he's not going to appreciate that very much. And you can't get farmers to. But it's like, it's like, you know, you don't have to do things to be eligible for the protocol. You just have to say that you will make, I mean, one of the options to the answers are, I will consider this for future. future. I'm, I think it was, I'm currently doing it, intend to do it, or uh, intend to do it in two, I mean, there's yes. there's, there was, there's, there five, was, there's yes. like five different options. And there was, so. I signed up, and there was one that said, not applicable for my area. Right. And I think most of it wasn't applicable to <laughs> West Texas. So. Well, and it's a... a you know, it, it like I said, it doesn't take that much change because let's no. face it, farmers are sustainable anyway, or they wouldn't still be here. I mean, just because you say it's sustainable, a lot of guys all of a sudden start thinking it's the the new cover crop or like minimal. But right. it, it's really they start asking these questions, and some conventional farmers could deem being sustainable because you're, I mean, you're laying off rows with the terraces, so you're holding water, you're deterring erosion. There's a bunch of different aspects to it than just the new way of farming said to speak. So, I mean, I feel like most people are eligible. They just got to look gotta into fill, it. Just got to fill out the paperwork. Yeah. I think that's something that needs to be like pushed more by anyone in the ag world is so let's, well, in the cotton world is let's, let's try to get everybody signed up because I mean, I like that meeting we were at the other day, they were saying someday they could China or somebody might not be buying cotton unless it's even in the protocol. Right. So, that could be an issue in the future. Um, one thing I remember to talk about, 
junior board. We have a junior board at our gym that we have older producers, and there's not very many of those young guys around, and the older guys are on the board, but the younger guys are not getting voted on. And you're trying to teach the jun- the, the younger guys how the board works, and I haven't seen that hardly anywhere else. Is uh, How's that been working out? Well, first off, they don't like to be called a junior board. Oh. They are an advisory board. <laughs> and uh, th- this is a concept that when I first got here in 2002, uh, Roscoe was doing it. And then it got to where we were having a hard time finding people to fill those spots because we were pretty stagnant on uh, board turnover. So as the years went on, well, they d- did away with that. So a few years back, we reinstituted that because we could see that we were going to be having some turnover. And, uh, you know, it, it gives the guys, we, we've since changed it again to where now they're serving three-year terms, just like a director. Because you get on there for one year and you see what's going on, and, and you'll spend the first year trying to figure out what we're doing. Uh, again, I'm very fortunate. My board is forward-looking. We... uh we will order equipment in November, maybe December, for the year after. Because, number one, we, we, we take our time, do our homework, figure out what we need. And then, number two, we don't want to have to – we don't want the equipment to come in in August, and we don't have time to get it ready before October. We want that equipment to be arriving on site February, January, if possible. So the forward-looking – board decided we needed to get back into uh, training some of the younger guys and we currently have uh, we have seven members on the board and then two on the advisory board of the seven three of them are have come through the advisor the advisory board program and they feel like it's you know they they picked up you know how do you deal with book credits? How do you deal with Section 199 deductions? Things that you don't hear about outside of the boardroom usually. But these guys have got, you know, my guys have got a good handle on it, and they seem to be, it seems to be working really well. Mm, that's good. It um, keeps a director, it, it keeps a newly elected director from coming in cold. He already has a general idea of what's going on and a good understanding of what's happening and what needs to go, what needs to be done. We need to do that for presidents. <laughs> um, so uh, one problem you deal with that a lot of guys in picker country and in other areas of the U.S. that don't deal with this is bell fluctuation. Um, you're, we mostly have dry land bells coming into the gin, and sometimes we have zeros everywhere. How have y'all had to deal with that? That's very tough for us. Uh, in my in my 20 years here, uh 2011 was by far the shortest year we had. We ginned cotton for two other co-ops at our plant, and we only ginned 9,900 bales, 99.96 to be exact. And uh, to a record year in 17 of 111, almost 112,000 bales. So how do, how do you? It's it's very much a roller coaster ride trying to figure out what to do. We have to be repaired and ready to go for that 100,000 bell year. I mean, it's just like right now. It's bone dry out there. We did get a little rain, you know, yesterday morning, and we're thankful for what we got, but we'd sure take some more. 
but uh, we're repairing just like we're going to gin 100,000 bales this year. We may not gin but 20 again like we did last year or year before last. But we have to be ready because we can't we can't wake up in August and say, oh, we're going to have a big year. We need to change all these things. Cause number one, we won't be able to get all the parts. And number two, you don't have enough time. So we we usually repair for 100,000 bale year. And simply because of our size, we just have to. It seems like as big as how many acres is we're covering that if we hit one, we hit a 2007 or a, or another 2017, it's going to be pretty big and like 150,000 bales probably. That's what, so it can happen. It can happen. We have enough, we have uh, enough acres that if it all hit pretty decently, yeah, we would be 140, 150 pretty easy. And, you know, that's one of the things that I struggle with is other producers or other other producers at other gins, okay, because they see us as we just cram that cotton through the gin. We run it through there so fast you can't clean it. You can't be getting a good grade. What they're not taking into consideration is the equipment that we have inside of that gin. We have five gin stands that are, are uh, you know, keep the saws sharp, the ribs in good shape. We have double lint cleaning behind each gin stand. So, uh we have, you know, I've, I've done the math. If you take a gin running 25 bales an hour divided by the number of saws that are in that gin stand, those gin stands and divide ours at 55 bales an hour by the number of saws that we have in the gin stands, we have more saws per bale. That's getting lint off the seed. We have more area of cleaning in the lint cleaners. That's getting the leaf and, and the pin trash and things out a lot better. So, yeah, we're running faster, but we're a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with the guys that used to run, you know, the, the 282s and the 283s versus the guy that's running the the 60 or the or the 690. He's just faster because he's bigger. It has the capability. Yes. Well, I mean, what was it, three or four years ago we tried that. I mean, we did the test with you all in a, another place, and, I mean, the grades came back identical. So there was, re- I mean, everybody was talking about, oh, they're getting better grades, but came down to it. Uh, it could just been different cotton, different conditions for some producers. Right. I will say that that 770 with uh, that three drum is basically a stick machine. Um, when I was up there, I had some of the highest turnouts of, out of anybody out of that gen that did 180,000 up at the Panhandle, and I had some of the highest turnouts up there. So that new... The new machine may be putting a whole lot more through it, but it's doing a better job because of technology. Right. And that helps us also because the gins, a lot of the gins down south and, well, picker gins, okay, they they gin faster anyway because they're not handling the amount of trash, the amount of sticks and and burrs and things that we are. And uh, if you get more out with your 770, that should increase our throughput. Yeah, I'm trying to put them down there in places where I strip cotton that the pickers, a lot of the guys down there are always like, I want a picker. I want a picker. And I'm like, well, I'm cheaper, but I'm also putting more cotton per wrap. And then I'm also getting almost the same turnout as your picker now. And right. they're running out of excuses to not hire me. That's what I've found out. And it's, it's kind of nice. <laughs> so, uh, I think we're getting, where are we at? Okay. We're getting pretty close here to the end. Um, so I'm been asking everybody the kind of question, what are, what are you seeing, 
is one of the biggest issues in the cotton world right now is just anywhere, any problem you can think of that everybody's kind of seeing or maybe you're seeing? It's a universal problem. It's labor. Uh, for instance, I've been, I've been looking at some stuff this week is the only reason these numbers are fresh on my mind. When I started in 1981, there were 796 gins in the state of Texas. They averaged that year. They averaged about 4,000 bales of gin and it was kind of a short year, but the next year was a bigger year and they averaged about 7,000 bales of gin. The past two years, well, 20 is was the most current data I could find on gins, but there's 185 gins. So we've shrunk by 600 gins over a period of 40 years. Each gin is now processing somewhere around 30,000 bales, and the gins are just bigger. I think there will be more and more consolidation going on. I think the gins that are that are uh, only the, that their average is say less than ten thousand bales. I'm afraid their days are numbered. But as those gins go away, and like I said, there were six hundred went away in forty years. So do the people. So does the skill. So does the know-how to run that gin. I mean, I look at, at you can tell an old ginner in a hurry because. He can feel and see what's going on. And the new guys, I mean, he can feel the machine and see what's happening. The new guys are looking at the gauges or, or looking at the, the digital controls. The technology. Yes, the technology. Your gin's a merger of how many gins? Four? When it was created? Yeah, well, I mean, I know the Roscoe Hinedale merger, and then I know the Farmers and the Acme merger that happened in 81. And prior to that, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I've been told there used to be five gins in Roscoe. So that's a total of six. So counting out of Dale, that would be six gins into one. So that's probably happening just about everywhere. Right. Okay. So labor, and how are you dealing with that? Just H2A, stuff like that, paying more? You know, we've tried the H2A program, and we were very fortunate to get some really good guys. It was actually some guys that had been here looking at equipment. And they ran identical equipment to what we have in Australia. So when they came here, it was just no problem. just showed up and went to work. It showed up and went to work. No learning curve. They already knew what was going on. It it worked well. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the short years that we've had, the uh, travel restrictions that have been, we've not used H2A for the last two years. Will we use it again? Yeah, we probably will have to. But uh, I'm very, I'm very lucky that a lot of our employees come back year after year. I mean, I try to, you know, I try to take care of them as best I can. We you know, fair pay, fair work, uh, because I mean, be honest, I can't do it all. I can't be out there doing everything and do what I do, and uh, so I want to take care of them so that so that this fat boy doesn't have to get out there and do <laughs> do a whole lot of work. Yeah, uh, labor. I mean, did y'all? I think we had a stint of COVID come through the gen at one point. Yeah, we did this year. We had uh, uh, COVID. Fortunately, we didn't lose anyone, but we did have some people get sick, mm-hmm. and it it created uh, created some problems. But we worked through those. We were very fortunate that uh, we had added added a person, especially in the office. Uh, Cason filled in whenever Kelly got sick, and and uh, he stepped up, and things went well. You know, out at the gin, 
Marshall was sick and out a few days, and, and the guys that I had out there running the gym, they stepped up and did more things. So uh, we all we all pulled together. Yeah, you can't beat that. Um, sometimes, I mean, we all deal with it. All, almost every farmer I know, that's one of their biggest gripes is just labor, no matter right. what. And that's really one of the reasons I have a job. So, um, I got a, I got two questions for him. All right. Okay. So I know most producers, not us to say to be, but you got some of those older guys that have seen the progress of cotton from hand picking to stripper to let's just say six ninety seven seventy. So on your side of it, from ginning at eighteen years old to now, I mean, most people don't get to see the inside of a gin. But what has been your most in your opinion, the most significant upgrade for y'all? It has been fascinating to see the equipment grow. I mean, the first gin that I was ever around had six-foot-wide equipment. My gin at Quanta had eight-foot-wide equipment. When I came to Roscoe, it's what they call a split 10-foot. So we had two sets of everything, 10-foot-wide. And I thought, holy cow, it just you know can't get any bigger than this. Well, now there are 12-foot equipment is pretty common. There is some 16-foot equipment being tested. And, uh, you know, I personally, I don't know how it's going to work. That remains to be seen because I do think you can get too big. But uh, the amount of cotton that's having to go through these gins, you know, I mean, that's like I was saying, you're, the average being around 30,000, uh, you've got to poke some cotton through there. And then, like you said earlier, the gin running 180,000, they, they have to get that cotton through there. They have to put in a lot of bales a day. Otherwise, your producer's sitting there waiting on his money. And the faster you can get through the gin, the more efficiently and get him his cotton processed where he can get his money, he can go stop some interest at the bank, the happier he is. A lot of guys up there that I have noticed when I first started coming up there, they were all new to cotton. And I was like, let's kill this stuff and get it done, get it out. And they just kind of looked at me with a blank face and they were like, um, what? But let's kill it. And they're like, how do we do that? So now I've got my big customer up in the panhandle and I'm like, let's kill it, get it done. And then we just start working through it. And he had all his money before. I mean, like we had the machine out of the area and back here. And I think he had his last cotton check like they were just following behind us picking them up and that's one of the things i've seen up there that they're getting those gins are getting very efficient and that's one of the things here that uh you know i think for our people we have a lot of baylor strippers we have uh last time i counted up i think we have 18 that come to our gin and Number one, they can harvest a lot of cotton. I was just about to ask on a re- let's just say a really good day. What would what do you think the total number of bells that could be turned in if everybody's running? Yeah, I think we we had over we had over three hundred modules turned in per day, a couple of days, and you do that. You know, we're ginning about ninety to hundred a day, so every to. day you're getting two more days behind. Don't and take long. You do that for a week, well, all of a sudden you're two weeks behind, and. uh this year especially, you know, the the balers just kept running. Wind doesn't bother them. Uh, it was a dry year, so they didn't really have to stop at night. But uh, uh, they just kept rolling and turning in. I mean, it was unbelievable how many modules we were getting turned in and consequently how far behind we got quick. 
it's not really fair to the guy with the monster builder when there's three CS 690s running in a field, running at nine miles an hour, doing basically road gear in 200-pound cotton, just knocking out 160 acres in two and a half hours. And then if you're on a basket stripper, you, you, you're getting behind every day with, right. with the gin. And that, that involves, I mean, you're paying interest on your money and stuff like that. So a lot of people I've told when you're thinking about buying a, a baler stripper, it's like you have to put that into perspective, getting your crop out on time. Because if everybody else has one, that's going to put you that far behind already. You know, again, that's one of the things we've done for our producers in the past, and we haven't done it lately, but I've um, kind of depends on what happens this year. But we had an incentive for you to defoliate your cotton and get it out because it's like you said, kill it, get it out, be done before the bad weather hits. And uh, that's what a lot of guys did this past I year. I think everybody ended up defoliating almost every acre, which is not a – common thing yeah, for that, our area. that's highly unusual for around here but i think almost there were there were a couple of fields that did not get sprayed but uh you know it didn't freeze until yeah way up in december so if you're waiting on a freeze to kill your dry land crop i mean you're not starting you're not going to start harvesting much before christmas and uh by that time you're way behind i mean we, we had a guy a new producer to us. We had a guy this year that turned in his modules. No problem. He called me in about four or five days and said, when y'all going to come pick these up? And I said, well, it's, you know, what's your numbers and this, that, and the other. Anyway, I told him, I said, it's going to be about a month before we get there. He said, a month? Yeah. Why? Why? I thought y'all handled some cotton. I said, well, you got to realize we've already had 72,000 bales turned in. So... I can see that can be an issue real quick. <laughs> yes, that becomes an issue. Yeah. And then uh, last question was, what's the oddest, craziest thing you've ever found come through oh. a, come through the gin? Easy. This year, we had the, <laughs> <laughs> the biggest raccoon I have ever seen in my life. I mean, I bet that sucker weighed 45 pounds, or, uh, a bunch. Where, like, Would you ever figure out where he came in or where you know, it was a strange deal we had the electricity go off about two or three in the morning and uh electricity was off for about 15 minutes and the guys went to cranking back up the gin well when they did they had a conveyor that wouldn't that was choked up so they thought it was just cotton and they're getting the pipe wrenches on it and trying to turn <laughs> it it's, it's not turning and uh anyway he got kind of compacted in the end of the conveyor and when they pulled him out you know i uh yeah, look look me up on Facebook and scroll through there. You'll see that. He wasn't very happy. Was he alive? No, he wasn't no, alive. No, okay. He he was. You know, fortunately, he wasn't all cut up or anything like that. But, uh, gosh, he was huge. He was huge, and, and that is by far the strangest thing I've seen. I think me and Tyler need an episode of things we found in cotton strippers. <laughs> we could we could go yeah. on for an hour on that. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, Larry. Uh, I think we're just about going to wrap it up here. Uh, anything you need to? Nope. All right. Well, appreciate, everybody. Appreciate what you're doing. I think cotton mafia is a pretty pretty cool term. It's actually not my term. Uh, I stole it from some kids had some hats made I saw a long time ago down around San Angelo. And I don't think they ever did anything with it. And I've been using the hashtag on TikTok for ever. So I guess I just kind of own it now. So it is what it is. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> but... All right, guys. Well, that's been Larry Black with the Central Loom Plains Co-op, and uh, appreciate having you on. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs>